Willie Nelson is one of the original outlaws of country music. He broke the norms of the country music genre far before it was in vogue to do so. And if you're familiar with Willie Nelson, he loves being an outlaw in all of life, including boasting about his lifestyle. Now, Dr. Russell Moore it wrote that about Willie Nelson, the self-branded outlaw, and he observed that Willie Nelson is less of an outlaw when it comes to marriage. Willie Nelson first got married when he was 18 years old, and he's been married repeatedly ever since. <laughs> he even says at one point in the 1970s, he was accidentally married to two different women. When speaking to his uh, biographer, Nelson had something interesting to say about all of his marriages. Willie Nelson said that there is no such thing as an ex-wife. There are only additional wives. It's an accumulation. Willie Nelson has had a unique history when it comes to women compared to most male adults. But his view of divorce may strike a chord with many male adults. You know, to Nelson, in, in his mind, uh, divorce is sad, but it's basically a high school breakup that's expensive and involves a lot of lawyers. But in Willie Nelson's brief, offhanded comment, he shows that deep down, he knows that divorce is not as casual as he approaches it. Underneath Nelson's outlaw exterior appears to be a deep sadness shared by a lot of people in our country. A sadness that knows and understands that marriage is not something you just easily leave behind. And how could someone like Willie Nelson do that, especially one who sang, you are always on my mind? Well, if I ask all of you here, who has been affected by divorce, either directly or indirectly, I'd guess that would include pretty much everyone, pretty much everyone. Friends, marriage and divorce are not casual things. And as all of us are affected, some more than others, by the confusion and pain that comes with marriage and divorce and the messages about both from our culture that we hear, and all of that, the confusion and the pain, Jesus offers us clarity and hope. All the confusion and pain, Jesus offers us clarity and hope. We're going to see that as we continue in the gospel according to Mark and chapter 10. and invite you to turn to Mark 10. Uh, if you're looking at the Pew Bible, it's on page 845. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the chapter numbers are the big, large numbers. The verse numbers are the small numbers that come after that. Mark 10. Uh, as you're turning there, it's just a reminder this week especially that one of the reasons why we at Old Oak preach consecutively through books of the Bible is so that we prevent ourselves from picking and choosing what we want to preach. Preaching consecutively through books of the Bible forces us to deal with all that's there. And that's a good thing, not just because we would avoid parts that make us feel uncomfortable, but also because we would miss out on those parts too, which God has given to us for a reason. So Mark 10, verses 1 to 12, God's word reads, and he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, 
what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house of the disciples, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. And this morning, the portion of God's word is a little bit spicy. In Mark 10, as Jesus continues to teach his disciples what he has come to do and what it means to follow him, we see that following Jesus, this is the main point, main point of this passage, following Jesus in the area of marriage means defining it as he does. Not first for our comfort, but first as reflecting the united, loving character of God. Following Jesus in the area of marriage means defining it as he does, not first for our comfort, but first as reflecting the united, loving character of God. To understand how we follow Jesus in the area of marriage and to see how he offers us clarity and hope in this area, we're going to cover three general takeaways from this passage, and then we're going to answer three questions that we might have in light of this passage. Just a heads up, the takeaways will take longer time than the questions. So the first takeaway from this passage, Mark 1, 1 to 12, is don't twist scripture. Don't twist scripture. Now before we get to see that takeaway really, really clearly, we see how in verses 1 to 2, as Mark often does, he sets the scene for us for what's about to take place. So we last left off Jesus in the city of Capernaum which is in the region of Galilee, where there's a lake there. Jesus spent most of his time there. This is in the northern part of Israel. Now we see, verse 1 and 2, Jesus travels south to the area of Judea. And when, as he's traveling south, we know that he has the ultimate destination of Jerusalem, kind of the hub of Judea. And this destination of Jerusalem is where Jesus would die and rise again, as he predicted last week in the passage from last week. So here, once he's in the region of Judea, we see that he's first in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan River. Now, if you're attuned to what's going on in the Gospel of Mark so far, this might ring a bell. The region beyond the Jordan River was where John the Baptist once ministered before he was executed. So it's here. In the region beyond the Jordan River, in Judea, we find Jesus, well, doing typical Jesus things. He is teaching and as he's teaching, crowds of people are drawn toward him. It's just a reminder, as Matthew 7 puts it, crowds of people were drawn toward Jesus because he taught with one who has authority, not, with, not like those of the scribes and the Pharisees. So we just see here, Mark doesn't divulge the content of Jesus' teaching, but he tells us another familiar scene that came up for Jesus all the time. That was after Jesus was done, Pharisees came to challenge him about what he taught. Who knows whether or not Jesus taught about marriage, but Pharisees, to remind you, if you aren't aware, Pharisees were one group of Jewish religious authorities. They were so concerned with maintaining Jewish identity 
and keeping the Old Testament law, that they set up fences around this law, kind of their own rules. Their own rules meant so that people wouldn't even get close to touching the law. Now you say, well, that's probably good thinking on their part, well intended. Well, not quite. Setting up these fences actually put burdens on people that God never intended. And what's more is we're going to see today, setting up these outer fences, their own rules, the Pharisees served their own interests. They they picked and chose what laws they really wanted to protect. So the Pharisees come up to Jesus, challenging them, and what do they ask? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, we can see a bit of their motivation in asking Jesus this. Just a a short turn of phrase in verse 2. See that in order to test him. In order to test Jesus, they ask this question. Now, again, just reminding you of where we've been in the Gospel of Mark. That little phrase, in order to test him. Where do you think we've seen that before? That's right. We've seen it from Mark 1, verse 13. This same word that uh, is used here for testing is what Satan did to test Jesus in the wilderness, to try to get Jesus to abandon his mission. So right from the start, the Pharisees are doing the same thing Satan did, testing Jesus. And right from the start, then, we can see that the Pharisees, they really aren't actually interested in what Jesus has to say about this subject. They're more interested in trying to trap Jesus, trying to get Jesus to fall. So they want to hear Jesus' thoughts on divorce. So they ask Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Trying to trap him. Now, why this subject? Why would divorce be a tricky subject for Jesus to navigate? Now, if we remember, like we just said, that this is the place Jesus was in right now where John the Baptist once ministered, we also remember What got John the Baptist into trouble? John the Baptist got into trouble over this exact subject, over divorce. John the Baptist called out the Tetrarch, Herod Antipas, about Herod's unlawful divorce. And you know what that got John the Baptist? His head chopped off. So maybe the Pharisees thought that if this subject of divorce could bring down the mighty John the Baptist, then maybe it could bring down Jesus as well. But just like it is now, too, the Pharisees chose divorce because divorce, like at all times and like in our times, is a controversial subject. So the Pharisees wanted to set up for Jesus pretty much a lose-lose scenario. Whatever side he picks, the Pharisees want Jesus to offend somebody. But we keep reading And Jesus knows what the Pharisees are up to. And you see, Jesus answers back the Pharisees with a question. What did Moses command you? Verse 3. And just in doing that, just this one of the side notes, Jesus is giving us instruction of how to handle contested issues of faith. What does Jesus do? He asks a question and he sticks to Scripture. Friends, this is instructive to us. If we're handling very hot topics, contested topics of faith, we do well to make sure we clarify, hey, let's make sure we're talking about the same thing and ask good questions, clarify our terms, and two, let's make sure we're sticking to what the Bible says. Jesus does both those things. What did Moses command you? 
So the Pharisees respond in verse 4. Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now the Pharisees were quoting the beginning part of Deuteronomy chapter 24, where the Mosaic law said that a man could divorce his wife if he found something indecent or improper with her. A man could divorce his wife if he found something indecent or improper with her. The question became, in interpreting Deuteronomy 24, what was indecent or improper? What fell under that category? There was one school of thought back then that taught indecent or improper really meant anything that displeased the husband. This is a more liberal view and interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. There is another school of thought back then that taught that indecent or improper only applied to sexual infidelity. That is adultery, cheating on your spouse. This is a more conservative interpretation of that passage. So by posing this question to Jesus, the Pharisees are pretty much trying to set up for Jesus a lose-lose scenario. Jesus, pick a side and offend somebody and see what happens. Now, while the Pharisees were known for their strictness, they were first about their own interests. So they held to the more liberal view. They wanted to keep divorce easy. They saw marriage as a disposable contractual agreement. That was their view of marriage. So think about this. In Jesus asking the Pharisees this question, what did Moses command you? He opens up for the Pharisees a ton of possibilities. They could go to a lot of places to teach about divorce and learn about divorce and marriage. And in all those possibilities, this is what they chose. Deuteronomy 24. Now imagine going to the bank for a mortgage loan. This is our favorite time in our lives. Borrowing money. And it could be an exciting time. You know, it's your first house. You're saving up. You want to get established. Uh, we have, I think we have a PNC representatives here. Multiple people work for PNC and a Chase representative here. Free advertising. Uh, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> so you're applying for a mortgage loan and the Pharisees starting their discussion about marriage by, starting, by first talking about how easy it should be to get out of marriage is like trying to get approved for a loan by first making sure and going over all the possible ways you don't have to pay the money back. There's a reason why you won't hear a, at least a good minister at a wedding ceremony say to the couple, okay, guys, here are all the ways you can get out of this. <laughs> so, not only, so here's the Pharisees' attitude and their approach toward marriage. And not only did we see that the Pharisees' attitude and motives were off when it came to this topic, but also that their attitude and their motives actually shaped and influenced the way they read the Bible. So look at how Jesus responds back to them in verse 5. He says, because of your hardness of heart, God, God wrote this commandment, or Moses wrote this commandment. So it's just a reminder that these verses that the Pharisees quoted from Deuteronomy, they weren't given to make divorce easy. Neither did they communicate that God somehow thought divorce was some good or even morally neutral thing. The words on divorce from Deuteronomy 
forced men to put a reason for their divorce in writing. They were meant, these words from Deuteronomy were meant to make divorce harder, not easier. And further, by requiring writing for divorce, a certificate of divorce, these verses in Deuteronomy also serve to protect the women in this situation, trying to maintain some shred of dignity for them and allowing them to marry another man if she so choose. Now, since the Pharisees began with their desire to keep divorce easy, that's what they started with. It led them to twisting what the Bible actually said. So friends, when we read the Bible, we have to start first with what the author is trying to accomplish in its original setting. That's what we have to start with instead of starting with our own agenda or our own point of interest. This is why here we do expositional preaching. We expose the meaning of the text, not impose our meaning onto the text. The Pharisees failed to do that. And failing to do that, they failed to understand God's word on marriage and divorce. So interpreting scripture according to what it actually intends to say Jesus says that God's original intention for marriage was not divorce, but that he allowed divorce because of our sin. So even in the situation where divorce may be permissible, it's not what God wants for marriages. So friends, here's a clue. That what's to blame for marriages going wrong, for the wreckage of marriages, and our culture of marriage at large, what's to blame ultimately is not secularism and liberalism. It's not the free love of the 1960s. It's not the strictness of the 1950s. It's not the relativistic anything goes mindset of today. The ultimate cause of brokenness in marriage is our broken, sinful hearts. That's the reason why every age and every culture faces challenges when it comes to marriage, not just our own. So if there is anything that should tell us that we are not what we should be, it's the state of our marriages. It's divorce. So yes, the, efforts, the effects of our sin shape our culture at large, but when it comes to our marriage problems, we have to start not by looking without, but by looking within. So in verses 6 to 9, moving on, we get a second big takeaway from this passage. And on the whole, in these verses, Jesus tells us that before we understand divorce, we have to understand marriage. Before we understand divorce, we have to understand marriage. Let's take away two. Now, we've already been to the bank to apply for a loan. Uh, we are living an adventurous life this morning because next we are going to enroll in pilot school. Yeah, so you want to be Tom Cruise from Top Gun. The new one looks really cool. And you get your blood pumping when you hear the song Danger Zone by Kenny Loggins. If you haven't heard it, you have to look it up. Now, it's your first day at pilot school, and the instructor's topic for the day is how to make and survive a crash landing. And the instructor, that's all he talks about, talks about it very thoroughly. And then when he's done, he says, okay, guys, the course is over. Good luck. Trying to discover the meaning of marriage and the intention for marriage 
by talking only about what it looks like for a marriage to fail is like trying to fly, to learn to fly an airplane by talking about only how to survive a crash landing. You haven't even gotten off the ground yet. So the Pharisees, they wanted to see how far they could push the envelope and still be okay. Jesus doesn't start with what we can get away with. Jesus begins with what God wants for us, with what we should do. But in so doing this, Jesus goes back to the very beginning. He goes back to Genesis. In doing this, he shows God's design, intention, and meaning for marriage. So let's read again, verses 6 to 9 from Mark 10, verses 6 to 9. See if we can put together different elements of Jesus' definition of marriage. Verses 6 to 9. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So in explaining God's intention for marriage, Jesus says that it starts with one man and one woman, male and female. Two shall become one. Jesus also emphasized that marriage is designed to be permanent, not intended to separate. This is because, Jesus says, marriage is a union brought about by God, one man, one woman, for life, because they have been united together by God, meant to be one, no longer two. This is witness, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, in their sexual union. Okay, so from that definition... One man, one woman, for life, united by God. From that definition, we should see what Jesus is not saying marriage is. Jesus is not saying that marriage is between any people who love each other. You may hear some make the claim that Jesus never spoke on the issue of same-sex relationships. But here, friends, right here is Jesus' definition of marriage a definition that he affirms from Genesis. I will just ask you, how do you fit same-sex marriage into that definition? You, you can't. There is so much more that could be said on this point. I don't want to pretend like I'm exhausting all the possible things we could say. But if you have a hard time with this issue, or if it hits close home to you, or if you disagree with this definition of marriage, of one man, one woman for life, you should know first that Christians aim, Christians aim should be to be respectful and careful and wise when we talk about this, speak the truth in love. But also, if you have a problem with this definition of marriage, your problem is ultimately not with Christians. Your problem is with Jesus. Because Jesus said this. We're not making this up. Jesus said this. And Christians, friends, Christians have decided that Jesus is worth listening to because he is the one who gave himself up for us. Giving, and so we have decided he is worth giving our entire lives to because he is the one who gave himself up for us and he rose from the dead. Christians, we trust that what Jesus says is true and what Jesus says is for our best interest in mind and that includes his words on marriage. So from Jesus' definition of marriage here, we notice that it's not 
between any people who love one another. But we should also notice that what Jesus is not saying marriage is, is that he's not saying that the purpose of marriage is for the comfort and pleasure of both partners. That is not the first purpose of marriage. A New York Times columnist wrote an article covering, covering how modern society has changed its approach toward the purpose of marriage. The article says, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution. And the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership. And they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each of them attain their valued goals. In other words, the modern view of marriage is a me marriage, not an us marriage. It's a view of marriage that is all about reaching your personal life goals, your dreams, your fulfillment, your happiness. And not to say that any of those things are necessarily bad, but the modern view of marriage is no longer first about the other person, no longer about us, but about me. And as soon as your spouse stops meeting your needs, well, you can get divorced. So many would look at Jesus's and the Bible's definition of marriage and label it as oppressive. And they would look at a newer view, a modern view of marriage, and label it as liberating. Finally, we are no longer bound by the shackles of, you know, antiquated traditional marriage. But ironically, it's this new view of marriage that is the one that has led to a steep decline in marriage. Just think about it. If marriage is all about how you as an individual prosper, then you are going to demand your partner doesn't get in your way. You're going to make impossible demands on your spouse. You're going to demand that he or she is low maintenance, and you're going to demand that he or she makes no claims on you to change. Instead of that, Jesus sees the purpose of marriage as becoming united. As one pastor puts it, in marriage, God's character is to be revealed. We are to love and to relate to each other as he loves and relates to us. With complete faithfulness, with sacrificial commitment, and all-embracing unity. Now many instead want all of the benefits of marriage without committing to the union with another person. Friends, that's a selfish way to approach marriage. Just like any of God's designs and commands, his purpose for marriage is not meant to keep us from something good. It's ultimately to lead us into something better than we we would design for ourselves. Marriage is not meant to be easy because we're sinners. But neither does marriage have to be miserable. Marriage still is a gift, a gift from God. So remember, where we are in this scene that Mark gives for us, After teaching, Jesus is approached by a group of Pharisees who sought, like they often did, to drag Jesus down. In response to their question on divorce, Jesus showed how they twisted God's original intention for marriage. 
wanting to make divorce as easy as possible, the Pharisees read God's instruction in such a way that kind of rubber-stamped their lifestyle. As Jesus continued, we see him approaching the topic of marriage, not by first talking about divorce, but by first, revolutionary enough, approaching the topic of marriage by first talking about marriage. Not by talking about what God says we're allowed to do, what's permissible, but by talking about first what God commands and what God intends. So in verses 10 to 12, we find Jesus again instructing his disciples, and he instructs them in private. So let's read verses 10 to 12 again one more time. It says there, And in the house, the disciples asked, that is Jesus again, about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Our first takeaway was don't twist scripture. Second is that before you understand divorce, you have to understand marriage. Third takeaway from these uh, three verses is that if you understand marriage, then you will not take divorce lightly. If you understand marriage, then you will not take divorce lightly. Now, what is Jesus saying in these verses? He says that someone who divorces their spouse and marries someone else is committing adultery against their former spouse, that is. Now, we just asked, this sounds kind of curious to us, how could this be adultery for that person if that person is divorced? How can you be cheating on your spouse if you no longer have a spouse? It's kind of tricky. Well, this must mean that the person in Jesus' example thinks he or she is divorced, but is really still married. That's because this person is still married to their former spouse because that person's divorce was invalid. It didn't actually take place for the right reasons, but for the wrong ones. Now, from these verses and the entire passage, Jesus does not say divorce can never happen. I think we see in verse 5, Jesus affirms that God permits divorce as a merciful adjustment to our sin. So Jesus' first point is not about when it's okay to get divorced. Jesus' first point was that if marriage is the union of two people in one flesh, then divorce should not be taken lightly. If marriage is this precious and serious, then divorce should not be taken lightly. It's kind of like how we should treat an amputation. Just think about it. You know, we've been to the bank. We've been to flight school. Maybe we'll go to the doctor's office now. <laughs> you go to the doctor and you say, Dr. So-and-so, my doctor's Dr. Chang. I grew up with Dr. Chang. Dr. Chang, you know, the past few years, you know, my right arm has just not been the same. I don't, it's not what it used to be. My right arm isn't all, all that I thought it would be cracked up to be. And I really, you know, I'm not in love with my right arm anymore. Dr. Trang, I think what I want to do is would you cut off my right arm? I think that's going to solve all of my discomfort and all of my problems. Divorce, like an amputation, should be a dire last result. Sometimes amputation is necessary, but it's not always necessary. More on that in a minute. 
So the Pharisees and many in Jesus' day did not understand this. They took marriage too lightly, and therefore they took divorce too lightly. The Pharisees were among those who divorced their wives for any kind of reason. And Jesus says that marriage is too precious, too weighty, too serious to be treated so casually. But it's not just that the Pharisees misunderstood God's meaning and design for marriage. It's also that the Pharisees misunderstood how God loves his people. Like we saw in Isaiah over and over again, God's people are called God's bride. Throughout the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God's people are called God's bride. And so, like we saw in Isaiah, time and time again, God's bride cheated on God by going after other gods and not living with the one true God as their king. So what the Pharisees should have asked themselves is what if God treated his bride the way that we are treating our wives? Famous commentator Matthew Henry puts it like this. He says, They who are divorcing their wives for every offense would do well to consider what would become of them if God should in like manner deal with them. The Pharisees didn't understand that since marriage is serious and weighty and precious, that divorce should be a dire and last result. I don't think I have to convince you that many in our day have the same approach to marriage and divorce. Many in our day don't uh, understand this either. That divorce is an option. In many cases, that's too quickly and too easily put on the table. And there are studies that confirm this. The American Values Institute found that two-thirds of those in unhappy marriages become happy within five years if they stay married. They found that across races, ages, genders, and incomes, that on average, unhappily married adults who divorced were no happier than unhappily married adults who stayed married. This led the surveyors to conclude that the benefits of divorce have been oversold. Many people see it as a quick escape hatch rather than a dire last resort. Now, like we talked about at the beginning, I know that this subject hits home for many of us. And I know that this topic can raise a lot, a lot of questions. I can't cover them all. But I think there are three closely connected to this passage that can help us. So the first question, maybe the first one you might have, is when is divorce legitimate or permissible? When is divorce legitimate or permissible? While we don't want to shy away from what this portion of the Bible says, we do want to be clear on what it does and what it doesn't say. So in this passage, in this particular one, Mark 10, 1 to 12, Jesus is not addressing first the grounds for divorce. He is addressing first the Pharisees' really lax stance on divorce. Jesus' first concern in this passage is that we would have a proper respect for the seriousness of marriage. Jesus is not spelling out what to do in every single hypothetical situation. This passage is something like 20 words. But even though Jesus doesn't directly address grounds for divorce here, when divorce is legitimate, when it's permissible, there are other places in the Bible that do talk about this. 
that talk more specifically about grounds or reasons for divorce. So one place in the Sermon on the Mount, as recorded in Matthew 5, Jesus taught that a legitimate reason for divorce is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. That word used there refers to sexual relations with any person besides your husband or wife. That's one reason for divorce. In 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul says that if a spouse leaves, you are not bound to remain married. This is often referred to as the grounds of abandonment or desertion. Now, we would say actions like physical, sexual, or any form of abuse are ways to abandon or desert your spouse. If it's not safe for a person to be in a home, then that is someone who has been effectively driven from that home and who has been abandoned by an unrepentant spouse. So the elders here believe that the Bible permits divorce in the cases of sexual immorality and abandonment or desertion. Now notice what's not included in that. We do not believe that the Bible permits divorce if a couple is just not happy anymore. We do not believe that the Bible permits divorce if a couple is simply not in love anymore or not compatible anymore or if one spouse has changed. And notice also that we believe that the Bible permits divorce. Permit is a deliberate strategic word. Because we don't believe that in every case of sexual immorality and abandonment, that divorce is required. It may be permitted, but it is not required. That's because our first instinct and desire should always be reconciliation. Should always be that. We should try to work toward repentance. We should try to work toward healing. But that isn't to say that there aren't situations when that's not possible and when that even shouldn't even be tried. So when we say that it's not possible and we even, um, that we say that our goal for couples to be reconciled, when we say that's our highest priority, our, should be our first instinct, we are not telling people that they have to remain in relationships where they feel at risk or in danger. We are not saying that. So to close this question, I will speak on behalf of the elders here and say that we do not want Old Oak Bible Church to be a place where you have to hide your difficulties and be too embarrassed to seek help. We do not want our church to be that kind of place. You know, every week, uh, at least most weeks, I hold up uh, this brochure. And on the front of this brochure, in big, bold letters, is a question. And it asks, isn't church for people who seem to have it all together? Friends, the answer to that question is no. A vital part of being a Christian is knowing that you don't have it all together, that you need help, that you need forgiveness. And it's okay to admit that even as a Christian. We want to help you and we want to point you to the healing and hope that we have in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you need help, however much the pastors can, in their limited wisdom, uh, myself included, if you need help, know that we are with you, okay? That's the first big question. Probably just scratched the surface. Second question, 
is how should you think of your divorce and or remarriage? How should you think of your divorce and or remarriage? So we've said throughout this time that we want to stress the seriousness of marriage. So if you come to the conclusion after hearing and considering God's word that your divorce or remarriage is illegitimate, you should ask yourself, what does repentance look like for me? And is reconciliation possible? That should be the first question you ask. And as you ask yourself that question, I would recommend that you get counsel and help on that. We want to uphold that there are such things as illegitimate divorces and remarriages. And we want to grow in how we uphold that. So, for example, when we bring in new members, we ask if they have been divorced or remarried. We ask to explain that situation to see if there's possible reconciliation While we want to handle this carefully, we want to handle this respectfully and lovingly and with wisdom, at the same time, friends, we do not want to walk in sin. We want to help one another in that. So how should we think of your divorce and or remarriage? It very well could be illegitimate. We want to help you. But at the same time, we want to uphold that there are such things as legitimate divorces and remarriages. If you feel your divorce and remarriage is biblical, then we do not want to heap on unnecessary guilt on you. One of the most important reminders we should say to those who are divorced is that God's mercy and grace extends to those who have failed in marriages. God's mercy and grace extends to those who have failed in marriage. Earlier in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus said that all sins can be forgiven. So on the off chance that there is someone here who is not a Christian and who has been divorced, you should know that each one of us here stand guilty before God. Even those who have never been divorced stand guilty before God. The one who spoke these words about marriage we've been talking about this morning knew this about us knew our guilt before God. Jesus knew that there is nothing before God that can make us good in God's sight. That is why Jesus came to live the life that we didn't live but should have and died the death we deserved in our place. So for all of us, divorced or not, our only hope before God is not in ourselves but in what Jesus Christ did to live and die in our place. So friend, non-Christian, if you are here, we would say, we would implore you to give your life in trust to him alone. If you want to know more about what that means, find me, find one of the elders afterwards. So my Christian brother or sister, if you are divorced, you should know that you are not a second-class Christian. You should know that you are not a second-class Christian. Like any Christian, you are equally forgiven, equally justified, equally accepted by God because of the finished work of Christ for our salvation. So like we said, as we stand in light of the cross of Jesus, we bring our guilt to him. And even as those who have been sinned against in matters of divorce, even as those, friends, who are, who are victims of the harmfulness of divorce, we stand in light of the cross. And we see one who was a victim for our sake, who is an innocent victim for our sake, and who proved his love for his people once and for all. So my Christian brother or sister who is divorced, know that you are forgiven, that you are loved, and that 
God will one day make all things right and will one day wipe away all of our tears. Last question. How do we as a church promote strong marriages? How do we as a church promote strong marriages? Earlier we read from the book of Ephesians, like much of the New Testament, Ephesians is better labeled as a letter than a book. It was written to an entire church. So it would have been read in front of the entire church for all the church to hear. So you think about this, included in the book of Ephesians or the letter of Ephesians are instructions about marriage. This means that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul thought that the entire church, all of it, needed to hear instructions about marriage. He thought that young singles needed to hear it, that seasoned married couples needed to hear it, that widows needed to hear it. This is because knowing God's purpose and design for marriage helps all of us shape our desires about marriage, whether we're not taking it seriously enough or even whether we're hoping in it too much, hoping to give it for, us, for that to give us value. Everyone knowing God's purpose and design for marriage helps us bear one another's burdens, guard one another from sin, learn from each other, and be a good witness to the world. It's important that we as an entire church know God's design and purpose for marriage. So how can we help one another promote strong marriages as a church in practical ways? I think in four ways at least. One, it looks like being proactive and discipling one another. Friends, do not underestimate the gift of the local church. Older couples, take younger couples under your wing. Younger couples, don't just hang out with younger couples. Hang out with those who have been married for a while. They know more than you do. Um, And don't underestimate that God has given us the local church. He's given us people to learn from, to help. I didn't ask permission to share, but, um, you know, one of the gifts that the Lord has given me in this season of my life as one who is engaged is I wouldn't say that You know, my mom's sickness has been a gift, but one way God has used it is that the Lord has shown me what it looks like for a husband to care for his wife. And what it looks like to sacrificially love and care for your one flesh. That is a gift. Friends, don't leave the local church. Remain in the local church. This is how we strengthen, promote strong marriages. Second way we can help one another is by not shying away from being effectively reactive. Not just proactive, we can be reactive also. Like we've said already, if you are having trouble in marriage, we don't want you to be embarrassed to ask for help. Please do. Third way we could promote strong marriages, what it looks like practically, is that it also, friends, looks like practicing church discipline when necessary. So when a member of our church is abandoning his or her spouse, we want to warn, hold the erring partner accountable, and say to them, don't do this. And if necessary, we will remove our affirmation of their profession of faith. But we want to work toward reconciliation with that. The fourth way we can promote strong marriages among us, perhaps the most important way, we as a church 
can do this, is to continue to preach, embrace, and live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in the passage from Ephesians we read earlier in the service, Paul quotes the same verse Jesus quotes from Genesis. Then Paul adds that this is a mystery, that this is something that's been hidden but now revealed. Paul says that the union between a man and a woman in marriage is meant to picture Christ's love for the church. Now think about what did Christ do to bring the church into union with him? Well, Ephesians 6.25 says he gave himself up for her. He died to his own interest and looked to our needs and our interests and by dying paid for our sins, removed our guilt. So we promote strong marriages just like we live all of life by following Jesus, the Son of God crucified for us. And we love others, including our spouse, the way Jesus loves us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we said earlier, marriage, divorce, remarriage, all these matters can be daunting. Very tricky to think through. Matters that we have scars and hurt from. So God, we ask that amidst the confusion that we have about these matters, that your word would bring us clarity and would renew our minds, not according to the pattern of the world, but according to your heart and will. That we ask, God, that amidst the hurts and the hopelessness, Lord, that you would bring healing through the gospel. And by the power of your spirit, you would help Old Oak Bible Church promote strong marriages. You would help Old Oak Bible Church live out the love of Christ expressed in the gospel. Jesus giving himself up for us. We can't do this on our own, God. We need you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.